1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Inderst, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Alan Meats, the author of Arcade Britannia, a social history of the British amusement arcade from 2022. The publisher, by the way, is MIT Press. Before we jump right in, though, I would let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the audio platform of your choice and share this episode or the others with your friends. And now, back to the show. Today... We shall hear about the story of the British Amusement Arcade from the 1800s to the present. Arcade Britannia highlights the differences between British and North American arcades, especially in the terms of the complex relationship between gambling and amusements. Ellen, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Hmm. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Yeah, uh, my name's Dr. Alan Meads. I'm a principal lecturer in games design at Canterbury Christchurch University. That's a university in the southeast of England. And Mm -hmm. um, I lead our games design provision, our undergraduate and postgraduate provision. And well, I've grown up Amongst seaside arcades, uh well, all my all my life. So yeah, arcades run in my blood. Let's put it that way. <laughs>
1: that's nice. Uh, that's very good. Well, of course we have to check for your Ludo Street credibility then. Please tell us what's your favorite game and the one or the even the ones um you're playing right now. Or maybe it's even our arcade machine. Well, we don't know. Let's hear it. Well this is where
0: I started to panic when you asked me this question I was thinking I've got to think of something really cool to say so that's actually
1: actually just to interrupt you briefly right here that's actually what most people say they feel under pressure <laughs> but there's no pressure involved here I promise you
0: I'm not very cool so that's good to hear the pressure's gone so actually I say probably my favorite game has to be Fallout 4 so I I know that it's been ridiculed by many people but it's the game I keep coming back to every time or perhaps it's Outrun I don't know I can't quite decide but right now I'm playing uh, well I tend to graze a couple of different games. So right now I'm playing uh, Ghosts of Tsushima. I'm also playing Disco Elysium. I'm still playing Cyberpunk 2077. And the one that I've got just before I go to sleep at night is, of course, Fire Emblem Engage. So Mm -hmm. quite an eclectic mix of games
1: there. Right, yeah. Well, circling back to your book, um, where you are drawing on first-hand accounts of industry members and different sources, including rare pictures and trade publications. And it seems to me that thereby you are telling the story of the first arcades, the people who made the machines, the rise of video games, plus the economic challenges spurred by public fears of moral decline. So please tell our listeners, how did you come to write Arcade Britannia in the first place? Yeah, thanks, Rudolph. Now,
0: this is a bit of a strange one. So, uh, while I've been working in higher education for 20 years now, my, my path into university and research was a bit of an odd one. It was never something that I intended to do or I ever thought I had the capacity to do. So, I grew up um, in the British seaside. I hung around in the arcades all day long, most evenings as well. So, the, the arcades were the background to my life. Anyway, uh, I ended up doing a PhD where I I spent um, five years doing an ethnography of people hacking and glitching and modding games. And I became really interested in transgressive play. So I wanted to know about all these strange things that people did and and the the ways that they played in ways that were considered quite bad. So um, after doing my PhD, I then had a bit of a crisis, really. I I thought, Mm. do I want to keep doing research where I'm forming arguments all the time? because it's quite difficult forming arguments. And instead, maybe I want to tell the stories of other people and and kind of expose some things that that were unknown. And if I'm honest, first of all, I wanted to tell about transgression in the arcade, because when I was an adolescent growing up in the arcade we got up to all kinds of shenanigans of course there were uh, gangs and there was fighting and then you know there was cigarettes and alcohol mm-hmm. sometimes and so I associated growing up in the arcade with a mix of uh, basic adolescent British kind of uh, behaviours mm-hmm. and what I wanted to do was was find out if people if people knew that and if people could share their stories of transgression. Of course, when I started doing it, when I started reaching out to people, I, I produced a comic book where I, I did oral history accounts of people's playing arcades. Yeah. I shared them with people and I asked them to share their their stories of transgression. And if I'm frank, those stories of transgression became pretty boring. They kept repeating the same things. But the thing that didn't make sense was the whole um, arcade edifice all around it. People didn't understand how the arcades ran how the machines got there, where they'd started, the dynamics of the arcade. And what happened was very slowly I realised that there was a more important, essential story to be told that was quite different to, you know, the ideas of Tron or Stranger Things or anything like that. It was a very British story of the evolution and growth of the arcade. So that's the very long answer to your question, that um,
1: I never intended to write that book, but it had to be written. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because I think in the public perception right now, especially where you're mentioning Stranger Things, right? This has been a, a really a big push in people's mind about the uh, certain images of, of arcade culture in the States, right? But people obviously, they, they they know, but they don't trust their mind that obviously they, their very own country has an origin story or history of um, arcade machines and arcade, um, really arcade life, Um themselves right
0: yeah well well, i I totally rally against the the stranger things version of the arcade you know Mm. i I, in the book i call it the mythic arcade because i just don't think it's real. it certainly isn't real from a british perspective i know it isn't real from a german perspective it isn't real from an australian perspective and yeah we have all these different regional stories of arcades and public play and Mm. i don't really think it's real from a a north american perspective either i think it's Mm. a a product of our times and and more to do with selling the idea of the emergence of video games rather than any real arcades.
1: Yeah. Well, since the focus of our show is on digital games, I would love to focus on later chapters in your book. That being said, of course, it would be totally reckless and an outright shame to exclude your fantastic and historic throwback onto the social history of the British amusement arcade. And it should be clear that these chapters also deepen one's understanding for later developments. So let's have a look at the uh, maybe first four chapters. Could you please guide us through them for our listeners?
0: Yeah, I think instead of doing a a step-by-step, chapter-by-chapter, it it might be better if I just discuss some of the themes that come out of those. Because the first four chapters really try and establish a historic base for the discussion of the arcade and what i do is i trace the history all the way back to well probably about 1100 so that that mm. might sound crazy but um <laughs> yeah we, we didn't have that many video games back then but yeah. uh but what we did have was a, a community of traveling showmen so in well in in all of northern europe you have communities of, of traveling entertainers you know that might be attached to circuses or menageries and uh, um they would be traders and they would run fairs. And essentially this group of performers and entertainers would travel all the way around Northern Europe and all the way around uh, the UK, entertaining people. And what happened was that this, this group of um, people, they became a, a self-identifying cultural group in England called the Travelling Showmen. And they were part of a Travelling Showmen's Guild. Is They essentially became the most technologically advanced the most um uh what were they the the most kind of technologically engaged people for entertainment so these were the people that popularized um amusement parks eventually they developed amusement parks and static amusement parks they developed things like uh, steam driven rides like merry-go-rounds and things like that and alongside these big, big rides, they would have sideshows. Now that might be a simple game where you have a toss a ball into a a hoop or something like that. But as technology advanced, that included uh, mechanical games and coin-operated games. Mm -hmm. And essentially this community were the ones that, when we get to about the late 1800s, have invested heavily in coin-operated machines, entertainments, and gambling machines. And this community, really is the same community that if you fast forward you know a, a, another 70 years are the ones that established the british amusement arcade something else happens as well that that's important is that after the uh, second world war there was uh, an enormous amount of redevelopment and building happening across uh, across the uk and that included social changes so whereas we had these travelling showmen who would travel all around the country the showgrounds and um, places where they'd set up their fairs for nearly a 1,000 years were, um, well, they were being removed and redeveloped as car parks or industrial sites and things like that. And the government essentially did whatever it could do to minimise and reduce the travelling showmen as a cultural group. Mm -hmm. And at, at that point, those showmen had the choice. If they wished to continue entertaining, they either had to become even more competitive or even more organized, but many of them saw the opportunities of becoming something called a sand dancer. Now, a sand dancer is a, a non pejorative term, so it's just a, a, a term used by traveling show folk or traveling showmen to mean people that have decided to stop traveling and set up a static arcade by the seaside. So ah, this was okay. something that happened. And then one thing that's absolutely critical, and this makes the British arcade completely different from an American one or an Australian one or a European one, Mm -hmm. was that in 1960, uh, after there'd been uh, suggestions of infiltration of the then illegal gambling machines. So in the 1950s, gambling machines were all throughout the UK. Uh, Gambling was illegal. But Mm -hmm. it was also socially accepted, so people engaged in gambling, low-stakes gambling, but it was strictly illegal. The police force were concerned um, about the enforcement of the rules and the laws because they were so socially unpopular. And uh, essentially, each policeman or police force was given local jurisdiction to make a decision about whether to enforce or not enforce any uh, gambling issues. Oh. In around 1950 in America, gambling law changed and it meant that um, gambling machines couldn't travel across state borders. And so with the massive contraction of opportunities for gambling in the United States, american speaking, Americans decided that Britain was the place to go. And so essentially a lot of American, um, well criminals, I guess, became Mm. involved in England, and uh, the British government became very, very concerned, and they introduced a law that, and this might sound counterintuitive, they introduced a law that legalized low-stakes gambling for everyone in England.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: So this meant that children could then legally gamble. It meant that anyone could legally gamble, but at certain levels of gambling. The other things that this law did, it regulated and controlled the machines. So essentially criminal elements could not be involved in the operation of these machines. But for the sand dancers, these arcade owners, this gave them an opportunity to make enormous amounts of money. They could now use Low stakes gambling machines like penny pushers or converted gambling machines yeah. um, to make a, a backbone of investment that then became the underpinning foundations for the future growth of the arcade. So there's there's a load of different things going on, but essentially those are the key points. You know, you've got the travelling showman, you've got the 1960 Gaming Act, and yeah, you've got the profusion of machines and issues with legality and gambling.
1: Hmm. And then um, continuing from there, your fifth chapter is called um, Pings, Pongs and Pioneers, which is really, I love it. Yeah, (laughs) It details (laughs) details the arrival of video games in Britain. It also highlights the already global and connected nature of the British amusement arcade uh, industry. And um, let's deep dive into these kickoff points in arcade history or younger arcade history then.
0: Yeah. So so if, if you think at this point, we're in the, well, in the, in the late 1960s, the British amusement arcade has grown enormously. So the income that's been made through that 1960 Gaming Act has meant that everyone has bought up all the old cinemas, all the old theatres around uh, the British coast. Mm-hmm. They've set up these arcades. They're awash with tourists because the holiday industry is booming in Britain and uh, yeah it's it's a good time people are making lots and lots of money now interestingly the laws changed that uh, there's less control given to seaside arcades than inner city arcades mm-hmm. and so it's it's an absolute boom time yeah. what happens as well is that uh, a number of manufacturers in england um, such as Mayfield Electronics, Streets of Eastbourne, begin making games for um, for the arcades. And I should say Cromptons, a very important manufacturer. Mm-hmm. And they're making, at this point, electromechanical games. So they're um, maybe shooting games where you're shooting uh, electronic tanks or mechanical tanks and things like that, or their they're penny pushes or their gambling machines. So there's this culture of copying and making games. Now, in... Let me just check my notes. I think it's, well, can I even see my notes? Uh, Yeah, so (laughs) here we are. So we've got the late 60s. Yeah. And um, there's also a trade show. There are several trade shows around England. And so it becomes really quite a buoyant place for games. Now, In 1969, a chap called Martin Bromley, who you're probably familiar with the company that he set up, Sega, Mm. um, his his company was um, sold to Gulf and Western. So Martin Bromley earned millions and millions of dollars through selling his company. After a couple of years, he gets a bit bored and he wants to get back into the arcade industry. And he sees Britain as being the most affluent, the most prosperous arcade location to go to. And so he um, essentially bankrolls a company called Alka, who were based in Oldham in Northern England. Mm-hmm. And at this point, the, the arcade industry is very much based around London and the Southeast. So it being based in Northern England is quite important because it can serve the huge population of arcades and travelling showmen who are in the other part of the country. Anyway, you mm-hmm. wants to talk about video games. So mm-hmm. uh, what happened was that uh, Martin Bromley... Um, arranged for some meetings between some really important people in the games industry at that time in, in England. So we've got David Green, who was the head of Associated Leisure at the time. He was perhaps the best arcade salesman in the country. Uh, we've got Jeff Ellis, who is an engineer at a company called Mayfield, who is considered the very best at making and copying electromechanical games. And we've got Martin Bromley, this multi-millionaire, slightly shady character who yeah. uh, has controlled the entire kind of arcade industry, well, across the globe, really, since um, since the Second World War. And what he does is he creates a company called Alka to make more games and make electronic games. And he just happens to have arranged a meeting and uh, connected all these people together at a perfect time. Now, there's... Uh, a trade show in October 1972 where Nolan Bushnell shows Pong. Mm-hmm. And Pong is seen at this this uh, uh, trade show in England. And uh, David Green has, by this point, accepted the position as the head of ALCA alongside uh, Jeff Ellis as the chief engineer. And when he's at this meeting, uh, this um, trade chair, trade fair, even, he's so impressed by the game that um, he he wants to get it. Now, he talks apparently to Sam Stern, the owner of Stern Pinball, who uh, says that everyone in America is about to make this game and copy this game. And David Green is essentially given the tip-off of the factory that makes these Pong games. And the very next day, he flies to America and he goes to this factory And the factory agrees to sell him 300 of these boards that he then brings back to the UK. Apparently, he pays $150 for each one, which was a huge amount of money at the time. Mm -hmm. He comes back with these 300. And Alka produce Ping Pong. Now, this game beats Atari to the British market by almost four months. No. And that's that's the first uh, video game in the UK. So th- that's an example of the kind of thing that that was happening. But there's there's lots of things happening at this time like that.
1: Hmm. That's really it's like a crime story almost. No, it's not a crime, but it's you know it's really suspenseful, of course. Yeah, it, yeah. it,
0: it wasn't a crime at the time. So what you've got to understand is that copyright wasn't really established within. Um, well, within within these digital games, yet although of course, Pong wasn't really a digital game; it was using other other components. Mm-hmm. But it, it's more to do with the the way the industry had developed, and it yeah. had developed in a way where objects, things were the thing. Data was never the thing that made sense to them, so they always uh, or. The manufacturers were quite accustomed to copying each other's designs, improving them, and refining them. So this might have felt slightly against the um, what is it? Against the rules of behaviour, but it, it wasn't really seen as being completely against the law. And, and also, uh, when I spoke to David Green before he, he died in twenty nineteen, yeah. he said that nobody that he spoke to ever thought that this would be anything more than just a a blip just an interesting game for maybe six months didn't think it was the start of a genre or a a, a way of playing so that, that
1: that was why they thought it was no big deal yeah i mean the whole idea of a genre it seems so seems so very natural to us right now and the players of course and the and the audience but the idea of a media game genre that's really something interesting when when it first started there was there were no genres as as we speak of right Huh.
0: Yeah, that's right. And the manufacturers also didn't understand the game or how it worked. So at Alka, quite famously, their the first games that they sold out, You know, their first 300 ping pongs, they didn't know how to fix them. They didn't know how they worked. They didn't even really know how to shield the boards. Mm-hmm. And so I interviewed one chap who, who suggested that every time a police van would drive past his pub, that had a alka ping pong in the game would reset because it was so poorly shielded that <sighs> um that the yeah the the interference would cause problems with the game so this was really new territory for them and they were just following the innovation from america really at this point
1: yeah so you were already talking about a bit about the copyright law, and in your sixth chapter, you combine this aspect with uh, something now very familiar, at least I think so, to our listeners, because you also discussed the British arcade crash of 1982, and um, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah. I, now, for a long while, I was in denial that there was ever a, an arcade crash mm-hmm. in England, because we didn't have the kind of the scorched-earth tales you heard from North America where every arcade shut down and everything was kind of almost finished. Or, you know, we we didn't have that kind of apocalyptic um, arcade experience. But but what we had was that video games became completely um, unprofitable in the arcade. But because of the investment that had been made, because of the income that could be made from the British arcades, because of their embracing of low stakes gambling and things like that it, it wasn't terminal it just meant that the arcades changed their focus for a few years and then they changed again but if you think that arcades have been around in england from about 1880 or if uh you read nick costa's latest book he would suggest even earlier than that about 1840 mm-hmm. what, what's happened is these arcades have just changed the games that they'd offered to the public so that was quite a a normal thing but yeah, the question about copyright is um, is very interesting. So skipping back really to the, the, the time of ALCA, so relatively soon, what happened was that um, people started copying these machines. You know, Rudolph, if you wanted to, if we were in the late 70s or the early 80s, you and I could agree over a pint of beer or a cup of tea or something like that, we we could agree to set up a, an arcade manufacturing company. We could decide to manufacture video games.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All, all we would need was you'd need to have a friend who made kitchen cabinets. Uh, I'd need to know someone who could sell us some arcade boards. I wouldn't care where they came from. And we might have to find a bunch of televisions or maybe some monitors if we really felt like spending money. And, and that would be it. We would become... Mm-hmm. A company. We could call that game whatever we really wanted. Very tempting. And, very tempting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's essentially what happened. So, so the 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 kind of the British, or in fact, the global market at that point in time, very quickly got saturated by people making games, people calling games different names, and then you also had the additional layers of uh, manufacturers or factories making an extra 25% of uh, an order and then selling them on the black market. Or you had people uh, fiddling around with the boards and editing them and changing them, making their own versions of games. And you had direct copies as well. So very quickly, the notion of copyright became really problematic because the manufacturers of the games were losing money. So Sega... Williams companies like that became increasingly litigious and increasingly bothered by what was happening Mm -hmm. and at the same time you know Rudolph and Allen's arcade company (laughs) you know there were companies like that all around the country and if you wanted to buy an arcade machine you could buy one put it in your pub or your cafe or in your um, or in your arcade and uh, you could try and make money from it but what happened was You started losing the amount of money. Sorry, you started getting reduced incomes because the public saw lots of games. There were too many games for the public to pay. Mm -hmm. Uh, The quality of the games was variable. And the manufacturers and the distributors stopped making money. So the crash was more that the, the distributors decided to stop importing games and selling them because it simply wasn't worth their while. But there's a really interesting chap who uh appears at this point in time a a person called john richards Mm -hmm. and john richards was a a dj a disc jockey so he he used to basically play music in some of the clubs that were frequented by the arcade industry in fact he played at a number of arcade industry kind of uh, christmas events and things like that and he's really interesting because he is a self-taught electronics expert and he found um through his contacts, essentially a load of broken Alka ping pong games and other early boards. And he was able to very quickly understand what had gone wrong with them and fix them, even though people in the industry at the time didn't know how to fix them. Yeah, And, and he developed a, a company with that expertise where he essentially would take these games and he would modify them and edit them and then sell them on. He would also do repairs and and people would pay them pay him to do them and then a little bit later on he made his own versions of games either using slightly modified hardware or um or hardware that he's created from scratch and essentially he does things like a, a horizontal version of Breakout that he calls breakthrough hmm. and just makes lots and lots of stuff now i, I think he's just an example of a, a really intelligent kind of entrepreneur and pioneer yeah. but as the years go on he gets involved directly in in copying and um, they're examples of yeah, yeah copyright infringement. So if we fast forward to the early 80s, so 1981, 1982, globally, the uh, arcade board manufacturers are in trouble. They're losing money left, right and centre and what they need is some kind of legal control or protection. Mm-hmm. And uh, what happens is that John Richards... And his company becomes the focus for uh, a legal case, a a case that goes into the high court all about this. So I think it's in uh, May 1981. There's a case in America between Cinematronics and uh, Sutra West. It's about a game called Star Castle. And -hmm. it establishes that in America, copyright applies to uh, the code on the chips on the arcade boards. And that means that anyone tampering with them or copying them is in breach of the law, and then shortly afterwards, what happens is that this John Richards, who's quite a, uh, what is he? He's quite a, an he's not antagonistic, but he's he's kind of a countercultural uh, person. He he entered into an interesting protracted argument with Sega mm-hmm. in the National uh, Arcade Press. So every week he would. Put in an argument, and there'd be a, a reply from John Leslie. Sorry, not John Leslie, Vic Leslie, who is the Sega representative. And then there'd be a, a backwards and forth between them. And in the end, Sega took uh, John Richards to court over copyright infringement on Frogger, and uh, John Richards decided to self defend himself mm. at the high court. And eventually he lost. So even though he was saying that the 1956 British Copyright Act applied and therefore he was able to do what he wanted, he failed at the High Court and copyright applied to uh, video games. Now, he's told me actually that he was quite happy to defend it. He never really thought that the defence would happen and that the that his uh, stance would be upheld. But it was just that the business was so lucrative at that point in time that it was preferable for him to uh, keep this going for another year or another nine months to go all the way to the high court. And then he knew that the copying games days would be over. Hmm. Of course, this didn't end there. There was still uh, copying happening all around the globe. And this became a a protracted issue um, for the entire industry. But probably most important for the discussion we've had, ultimately, that copyright law with John Richard's killed Alka, you know, that company started by um, Martin Bromley, because what happened was that uh, Alka apparently had bought one board of Frogger in February 1982 and made a 100 copies and put it in the machines that they ran in different pubs and cafes, desperate to try and make money. And then that was uncovered. It was all illegal. Uh, Martin Bromley pulled his funding and the company went belly up. So that's that was the, the impact of all of that. Mm. Would be
1: also the end of our little company, right? Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sorry. It's been great working with you. <laughs> right. Yeah. The best times. Yeah. <laughs> Now, uh, Chapter 7, called The Invader's Revenge, what a great title again, is maybe my favorite chapter. You focus on the development of relationships between the Japanese and British video game industries, and it's really a fantastic read. And maybe I thought we can also combine your thoughts here with the ninth chapter, Sega World Street Fighter 1 uh, <laughs> and exporting games to Japan.
0: Crikey, yeah, a lot, a lot to cover.
1: But yeah, yeah let,
0: let's... Let's try and do that. So I've painted a pretty bleak and if I'm honest, slightly myopic uh reading of the arcade industry. Because mm-hmm. this is the issue. When when you're when you're trying to tell a story that hasn't been told before, you have to omit certain things, you have to simplify certain structures. And um yeah, it's it's a bit of a problem. So while all that other stuff was happening, you also had people that understood um well, how to do business and how to forge kind of uh, partnerships with international partners. Mm-hmm. And uh, one one company is ElectroCoin. And ElectroCoin are a, a company that's still in business now. And ElectroCoin are essentially uh, the company that stabilised all of these problems in within the British market and did an awful lot to stabilise the European and global markets, actually. And if... Um, if there's kind of any accusation of bias in in my book, it would be that uh, a character called John Stagidis, uh, who's the managing director of ElectroCoin, comes out as a bit of a hero in the story because he's the person that managed to work all the way through these ups and downs mm-hmm. as quite a visible and vocal member of the arcade community, but also one that forged really strong links with Japanese manufacturers and and essentially ushered the later um, stages of the arcade for Britain. So just to give you an idea, Mm -hmm. uh, the largest um, kind of distributor of video games in the early 80s was a company called Associated Leisure. And um, that was the company that um, Michael Green had worked for uh, for a number of years. But Associated leisure, leisure essentially had enormous buying power. They could treat distributors, sorry, they could treat manufacturers with, 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 well, almost with contempt, to be honest, because they almost had the monopoly on the market. Mm, I see. Yeah. And in the early 80s, they formed an agreement with Universal, so Universal Games of Japan. And they um, apparently arranged for a number of video games to be brought over. So it would have been the Cosmic Monsters games, so the Cosmic series of of shoot 'em ups And apparently when the delegation arrived in England, there was no one from Associated Leisure to meet them. They ignored the phone calls. And essentially, uh, the people from Associated Leisure decided no longer to go ahead with that deal. And that's... That's pretty shoddy business behavior, whether or not it's, it's really true or not is, um, is questionable. But essentially what happened was these um, these businessmen from Universal Games ended up by chance uh, going to an arcade in London that was owned by John Stagidis and was owned by ElectroCoin. At which point, John G d said that he would take on the order that had been dropped by Associated Leisure. And through this act of, well, principle and fair trading, essentially built really strong links with this company. So ElectroCoin after that became the single um, licensed exporter for Universal Games, and then uh, John Stagidi's reputation with the Japanese developers uh, grew, and then he would go out to Japan, and he forged links with Capcom, and essentially all of the 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 bad business practices. Uh, John Stagidi's and ElectroCoin became people that regulated and and um, kind of standardised the the market. Now, John Stagidi suggested that. Uh, the number of games being imported should be reduced. He would go out and he would advise the Japanese developers of how to change games for a European market Mm -hmm. and essentially started to take control and urge um, a certain degree of calm within the market. So when people were saying about the death of the video game industry, uh, Electrocoin and John Stagidis were saying, "No, no, no. We just need to reduce our imports. We need to be very careful about the quality of games and sort things out." So, um, I probably haven't answered your question, but I, that's that's very important background kind of um, information. So, uh, ask me some more because I've
1: slightly lost the plot. <laughs> Yeah, how does this all fit together with the with the enormous uh, enormous success story of, of 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 future success story? Because as soon as I was reading Street Fighter, of course, I thought, well, that's it. That's 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 a certain milestone. I would like to hear and learn more about this and the the, the interconnections.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's good. You got me back on track. So, uh, m- apart from my love, my love for John Stagidis that I've yeah. just been expressing. Um, well, you know, I-, I grew up in the arcades in the late nineteen eighties. So the games that I loved and I looked at were, yeah, Street Fighter Two, Final Fight, Ghouls and Ghosts, hmm. Bubble Bobble. Uh, you know, I might play something like Operation Wolf. But many, many of these games were. Uh, distributed by electric coin including street fighter so what happened was that through this very careful rather vociferous kind of trading with with japan so for instance john stagidis he um He complained about JAMA, you know, the Japanese um, amusement arcade trading organization. Mm -hmm. He said that their business practices were toxic to the European industry and he urged them to engage in some kind of regulation of their business practices, something that they did. And uh, ElectroCoin and Stagidis ended up entering into partnership with Capcom as well. So that uh, era of video games that I loved was essentially... Uh, a product of that that early partnership with Universal and that continued very, very sincere, very, very clear business dealing. And yeah, one of the products of it was Street Fighter. So Street Fighter 2 um, entered into the arcades in, well, it would have been early 1991. And at that point, British amusement arcades had changed again. What had happened was that video games had diminished. They became fewer and fewer. And by that, I mean... An individual video game on an arcade cab. Instead, what we had was uh, an increasing number of driving cabs and driving machines because video games became increasingly expensive. And so arcade owners thought it was better to invest in bigger machines that lasted for longer. Also, the yen, the Japanese yen, was increasing in value and it was making imports increasingly difficult. Anyway, Street Fighter II arrives, and the game completely changes. So if you went to an arcade in the early 1990s, so certainly by 1992, you would see bank after bank after bank of Street Fighter games. Hmm. For instance, the arcade that I went into had three copies of Street Fighter II. I had them on these special sit-down arcade machines made by ElectroCoin. They're called Duet ElectroCoin duets. So you could sit next to someone and you could play them a bit like a candy cab. And um, yeah, Street Fighter 2 was everywhere. It, it it became a problem that ElectroCoin started testing out Street Fighter 2 in arcades in central London, and the police had to be involved to uh, move the crowds away. And then, of course, ElectroCoin Use that as a, an opportunity to advertise their game, apologising to all the people in London for being obstructed by the popularity of Street Fighter Two. Yeah. But Street Fighter Two was was a a, a complete um, cultural cultural shift or a cultural moment. So we also had lots and lots of copies of Street Fighter Two. So, for instance, when I would go to school in the morning. Um, we would go past the chip shop and at lunchtime we would go to the chip shop and we'd have a portion of chips and then we would play a dodgy version of Street Fighter Two, Street Fighter Two Rainbow Edition, yeah. and then Street Fighter Two Black Belt Edition that were essentially modified hacks of the game that were – just e- excellent to play. But but Street Fighter 2 became a, a kind of a, a cultural motif for us. And the arcades were very, very busy. And it ushered kind of a, a second age or perhaps a third age of video games in the arcade. So, yeah, loads of stuff. This was through very cro- close relationship between Japanese uh, manufacturers and British uh, distributors. And this extended even further that... Um, at a certain point, the yen became so expensive, so valuable, that Japanese manufacturers made their games in uh, in the UK and then exported them back to Japan. It was cheaper to do that. And so think about the, the Japanese view of arcades was on some level influenced by the British market and the European market by extension. And um, Sega decided that part of their grand vision of the future of the arcade was to bring a Japanese uh, family entertainment model to uh, to England, and they they created an enormous, enormous arcade in Trocadero. Mm-hmm. Very strangely, so Trocadero is uh, an area. It's a big building in central London, and they they created a, an enormous amusement park and arcade on top of perhaps the second largest arcade already in Britain. So we have this very, very strange thing. They invest a colossal amount of money. So this isn't just an arcade. This has, a, uh, I think, it's six different rides, including go-karts. You could fire uh, balls at other go-karts and it tally scores. All, all kinds of stuff, enormous investment. And it's a complete critical and commercial failure. It oh. closes within four years of being released and... Um, it, it, it shows kind of the end of the Japanese vision of uh, arcades in other countries. So lots of really overlapping stuff. But, but what you get in this period is a very close relationship between Japanese arcade manufacturers, Japanese video game manufacturers and the British market. <laughs>
1: I almost was t- tempted to ask um, whether whether this, this magical place still exists, but <laughs> this would have spoiled But then you did. Oh, no, my utopia, it's gone. Yeah, we- weirdly, I
0: never went to Sega World. That's uh, one of my regrets. I've got a Sega World brochure, but I never went there. So, um, well, oddly, what happened was that Sega World, when it started closing down, because it was built over multiple levels mm-hmm. and the 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 arcade that was uh, underneath it funland ended up buying or leasing uh floors of sega world it was almost like it cannibalized it back it was it was quite an interesting thing to think about afterwards so yeah sega world came and failed and then the arcade expanded to take over bits of sega world so no i'm afraid it doesn't exist but it, apparently it was a fantastic arcade it it had the very best machines from Sega there
1: well we are entering the final round or shall I I say stage so this is where I'd like to ask my guests for a little meta reflection Um, what aspects and ideas would you have loved to include in your book that did not make the cut and secondly and I'm really excited to ask that one where do you see uh, game studies as a research field in general at the moment
0: yeah. Thank you.
1: Okay. Well,
0: yeah. So I I said earlier on that um, I never really intended to write this book. I wanted to tell a different book about people first and foremost, and the way that they played. And I, I think that really, I'd still quite like to do that. I, I think that the thing I'd like to express is kind of the the character, you know, the 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 entrepreneurial nature of many of these people the ways that people played in arcades and, and say something that's slightly less historical and and speaks more about the, the played experience of being in arcades. And then who knows? Um, there are some larger-than-life characters that I've encountered and learned about and I've seen in the historical record. And I just think there are so many more stories, perhaps more interesting stories in a way, that could be told. And so, yeah, I've been toying with the idea of... Uh, I don't know, a, a historical film with like a historical fiction about arcades or something like that. But it's essentially there are lots of potential things that can be done and, and and should be done really and that I couldn't do in that book. So I'm still toying with it. But, um yeah, I think there'll be more things. And as for, you know, where do I see game studies as a field? Well, frankly, game studies is for me enormous it's so enormous Mm -hmm. it's so diverse so i was at digra um the digra conference this year and i i was just struck by there seems to be a track for almost any kind of subfield or or sub discipline or area and and so i I would imagine it's quite intimidating for new scholars because it, it is so large it's so encompassing but I think it's absolutely fascinating because of that that kind of richness and, and breadth in the sense that you can talk to scholars about almost any field, any kind of area of specialism, and yet you can relate it back to your lived experiences through play and through game. So I, I think that um, game studies is in, in a really rich and interesting place at the moment, um, I guess. It probably is going to break up into a number of different subfields, but it's it's so rich and so interesting that I'm thrilled to be a part of it.
1: What do yeah. you think? Well, it's 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 a classic question in a way because um, game study seems to be caught between. This, this the status of being an interdisciplinary field of research and somehow striving for becoming a known discipline right at least in mm-hmm. Germany we don't have the we don't have the particular or specific institutions nor the lectureships there is no financial backup but we can clearly see that um, there is a huge interest from all kinds of fields um, but it just it's not far enough, or maybe it's even maybe it's even not the mo- the the model of the future to to strive for an institutional a stronger institutionalization there. But um, for for young for younger scholar or even say students, of course you can you can write your bachelor thesis, or your master thesis. But what next? Because there are no yeah. real lectureships for this kind of work. Um, I think we have. Uh, Maybe two or three who are colleagues who are really um, who actually work in this field 24/7. But even they, their um, denomination is not really called uh, game studies. So um, difficult, but um, yeah. On the other hand, we can see what's especially interesting to me: this, that the the way journalism is dealing with the topic has diversified enormously. So yeah. they keep, especially this sort of cultural, furtunistic uh, approach to these topics, and um, they keep they're gonna keep asking questions that are also questions for academic game studies. So maybe. This is um, this 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 type of alliance or form of connection is something that can initiate a new growth for the academic side as well. We mm. have to see, I guess. You've got fantastic conferences, though,
0: haven't you? So, you know, I, I love Amaze. Amaze, I think, is just mm. one of the most
1: fantastic yeah. kind of
0: um, events yeah.
1: going. I mean, they have, so, you know. Yeah. I mean, they had it hard like everyone else during the pandemic. Now, but um, I think they're getting back on track. And um, I know lots of these people; they're really, they're really on fire. They live this, and um, I hope they have the the success. It's not it's not given, but it's definitely earned. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I I, I guess I'd quite like to see digra becoming slightly more like a maze or some kind of melding of the the practice and the experimentation alongside game studies and and the research i think things become much more rich through interdisciplinarity really i i'd
1: love to see more of that yeah you're absolutely right and this brings me to our final point alan what are you working on right now and of course what will you be playing next oh Good questions. Well, who knows what I'm going to be
0: working on? So <laughs> I, at, at the moment, I'm I'm working on a, a digital recreation of the 1980s British arcade, of course. So mm-hmm. we've created um, two arcades from a place called Hearn Bay, so a little bit round from where I live. Uh, in Unreal Engine 5 and you can walk around a relatively accurate 1980s British arcade you can then walk outside and go next door into a bingo arcade and if you're really interested you can look at a machine you can press a button and my dulcet tones will appear as I explain the game and the kind of the cultural context now that's going to be exhibited at Somerset House in London as part of London Design Biennial cool. and um we're now in talks with uh well i don't know if i should say we're in talks with a a major cultural um thing uh, to do uh, (laughs) (laughs) a similar kind of project about something slightly more important according to most people than arcade so so potentially we'll do something a bit like the Walden game Hmm. but for uh, something important in England but I can't say what that is that's that's just happening right now yeah and then aside from that who knows I, I do quite fancy the idea of making a um kind of a historical fiction or maybe writing a television series. I do like the idea of of some kind of arcade television series, you know, something somewhere between Peaky Blinders and The
1: Sopranos and, oh. I don't know, Baldwark Empire. But, but who knows? Who knows? Rudolph, who knows what the plan is? I mean these all sound like really great projects. So I want to thank you for being on the show today and I really enjoyed it. And before before my last goodbye is coming on air, um, if people want to follow you on Twitter, is there anything or any, any platform in specific you you like to be you like to be followed? <laughs> God,
0: this is very strange, isn't it? I, I'm probably the only person who will say, you know, I don't really do social media, but people can reach out and they can email me or they can come find me. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I would say probably the best thing to do is to... Yeah. Email me. Find me online and email me while I'll find um, out how to set up a Twitter account, things like that.
1: (laughs) It's okay. So thank you again. Take care and goodbye, Alan. Thank you very much for having me. So, dear listeners, I hope you liked this episode. If you are an author and/or an editor in the field of game studies or game research yourself and want to talk about your latest publication, please do not hesitate to contact me under rudolf.indust at googlemail.com. Alternatively, please send me a direct message on social media. You will find me under Rudolf Indust almost everywhere. And now, see you in a bit.